Last month, the University of Pennsylvania released the most extensive study ever on the human brain comparing men's brains and women's brains. They published it in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in December. They used this form of MRI that called the fusion tensor imaging, maps diffusion of water molecules, connectomes. I don't even know what all that means. Well, they did it over 1,000 people, watched them over time, and watched the level of connectivity between nearly 100 regions of the brain. Uh, Jeannie Verma, associate professor of radiology, uh, relayed the findings and said something that was pretty much a confirmation of what some people had already known. Uh, so you're already telling jokes to yourself, aren't you? Yeah. So here's what, here's what they said. In women, most of the connections in the brain go between the left and right, and they cross the two hemispheres. That's the picture on the, the bottom. While in men, most of the connections go back and forth within the same hemisphere. What that means is that there are implications. The female brain is hardwired to do things a little differently than the, ma- the male brain in several ways. And it makes females generally a little bit more adept in things like multitasking, verbal skills. See, I could just stop now. I, got, I don't have enough time, right? <laughs> Intuitive thinking. Remembering specific words and faces. And what they call social cognition, like empathy and having emotional intelligence. And men are better at pretty much nothing. (laughs) No, that's not entirely true. Men are better at concentrating on a single complex activity at one time. They're better at some motor skills, like playing with a ball. And spatial skills like map reading. Apparently, uh, from our family, the difference when you say left and right and knowing the difference, the male is better at that than the female. No surprise. No, 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 you're other left. That explains a lot, doesn't it? There's, there's some stuff that it explains. And then there's other things that it doesn't explain. It doesn't explain things that are just dis- distinct about how, well, I'll show you a few. When women pack, with our apologies to people just listening on audio only, the thing about starting a month early, and I'll let you see what else it says. And then compared to when men pack, five minutes before the departure, I liked, and done. I think you might have seen this before. When women choose shampoo, the factors that go into that decision, including effectiveness, brands, whatever, what it takes, all that color quality. When men shampoo, choose shampoo, it says shampoo. Whereas women say, I have nothing to wear. Men are wired that they say, I have nothing to play. And the way women, when they take their children out for a walk, compared to how men take their children out for a walk. There are some explainable differences, there are some unexplainable differences, and there are some differences that are just psychotic when it comes to guys. If it's round, we'll make a game out of it. If it's shiny, we will buy it. If it's reflective, we will look at our reflection in it. 
and think that what we see is better than reality. There are just some things. We can tell some secrets, guys, sorry. But whatever happens in the man's brain that makes it him feel like he can get away with that without being seen to scratch and adjust himself in public like no one notices. There's a thing that goes on that says when you spill on the kitchen linoleum, you activate the sock mop. And that's a good idea. All right, now, most people know that one of the differences between men and women is, is when, when a man needs to go and nature calls and he has to go want it, number one it, he can stand. We really enjoy that fact as men, that that's a benefit we have. We can stand while we do that. Now, I could tell you many things about this, but I'm just going to tell you one that you may have never heard before, ladies, and I will tell you, I don't know why this is. We don't talk about it in public, but it is a universal fact, a universal fact about men. If we go and we're standing there and somebody has gone before us and somewhere in the toilet is a remnant of a number two along the side of the bowl, universally, man will take it upon himself to dislodge said thing. By deploying the water cannon. There is not a man in here who can deny that that's what we do. And when, it, and when they were successful, we feel this rush of power. Yeah! So some of what it means to be a man, no one will ever get. Here's what we're here to do. We're not here to bash men. We're not here to, to uh, parrot stereotypes. We're not here to be misogynists about the distinctions. We're not here to diminish one or the other. What we're going to do for a few weeks here is we're going to take an honest look at a design that God has for men. If you are dating a man or considering dating a man, I would encourage you to take careful notes and say, do not settle for less than what we're going to see in the man that you date or consider dating. If you are married to a man or work with men, my hope would be that you would have a little better understanding of how, why we do what we do and what we're made for so that you can relate a little bit you, uh, differently perhaps, so that you can honor that a little bit. And if you're a man, I will tell you now, guys, I... Do not get sick and do not play hooky in the next couple weeks. We're going to talk straight about what we were meant to be. And you're going to be invited to say, live out the calling on your life, the design of your life. And so I'm going to invite you to the Bible right from the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. If you would take a look with me, Genesis chapter 1. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start with an overarching statement that I'm going to give to you. This is not from Scripture. This is more of a summary. When you look at the Bible, when you take the entirety of what Scripture says, when it describes man, when it describes the the creation of man and, and the intention of man, I'm going to suggest to you a statement that I encourage you, you might want to write it down, you might want to just think about it, but this is a good, this would be good for a discussion, for application, that I, if we want to summarize, this is the purpose of being a male, 
of being masculine, being created to, as a man. As God would, if we summarize what God says, here is a way you could say it, that the purpose of a male, a man, is this, to move powerfully and courageously into his world, sacrificing to bring out the best of that in his charge for the glory of its creator. We're going to unpack that a little bit as we go. We're going to unpack it today, and then next week we're really going to dive into, okay, what are the practical ways that that, what does that look like in real life? But it starts in Genesis chapter 1, this intention for the male. Now, if you go to Genesis 1, you see, this is a very common of passages if you've never been in the bible you probably might have heard this in our culture in genesis 1 26 god said let us make man mankind it means in our image in our likeness and let them meaning male and female rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the livestock over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground so god created man mankind in his image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them we are all image bearers we all have aspects of the character of god that we are called to emulate in genesis chapter 2 it takes genesis chapter 1 and it says okay now let's get more specific and there are very specific statements made about the creation of adam the first man and then eve the first woman so if you follow down to genesis chapter 2 verse 7 this is how it's summarized the lord god formed the man, the Adam, the, the, the male. He's formed him from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Lord God made all kinds of trees, grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for the food. In the middle of the garden was a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Will get, that comes into play in Genesis chapter 3. But look at what he says specifically. Now, before Eve is, is created, there's a specific statement that is made to the Adam, the man, the first man. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Shortly after this is when he creates a woman for her purposes from the very beginning in the garden of eden god gives an assignment to the man which you could say is summarized in part of this statement to move powerfully into the world that he was created and to do something with it to bring out the best of that in his charge he sent him into the garden to tend to it to enhance it to bring out the best in it there was an assignment there to move into that world and to be a catalyst for something to happen God gave the raw materials there, and now he, the man is supposed to bring the best out of that. He also gives him a responsibility that you hear where he says there's a moral responsibility. You're in charge of staying within the boundaries of what you were created to be by, by uh, taking part of any part of the trees except for the one, the knowledge of good and evil. So in the garden, God says your job, Adam, Adam, man, is to move into that world strongly courageously go in and bring the best out of it that same theme shows up all through the scripture and we're not going to take time with all of it but the specifics that are given to the man as a husband in ephesians chapter 5 reflect that 
where I'll just, I'll just read this to you. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and he gave himself for, up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with, with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. That same assignment is there. There's some responsibility there. There's a, there's a, to move into that relationship and to and an effect uh, bringing about good in it. And in society, God's word has reflected that men have been called to have that same kind of principle at play. Masculinity, it has been said, should be considered like it's an energy. If you are a male, you are asked to be masculine. It is not how you measure your biceps. It is not what you, how much you earn. It's an energy. Uh, in The Silence of Adam, Larry Crabb wrote, Let me encourage you to think of masculinity as an energy, a natural momentum within the heart of every man, a power and an urge to move into life in a particular way. Men in whom masculine energy is suppressed or distorted are unmanly, ungodly men, however culture may regard them. Men are manly only when they live in the power of released masculine energy. And he calls that released manhood, which he says can be thwarted by either remaining dormant or being expressed in a corrupted form. Guys, intrinsic to your design as a male is this assignment. You were created with that purpose in mind to live that out. Now, you're going to hear this more in the next couple of weeks, but there are two primary corruptors at work that thwart that or that, or that contaminate the release of masculinity as God intended. And I'm just going to give you these words. We'll talk about them later. Two primary forces at work that will stop that from happening. Selfishness and fear. We'll come back to those either later today or maybe next week. Now, once we use that as kind of our base for saying there's an assignment given to us as men, let's unpack it just a bit. Because there's certain components that go into making that design live itself out. And so I'm going to keep that little phrase up in the corner and give you another set, three words. Here is what is involved in living out that assignment. The first word I'm going to give you is this one, initiator. The way you live that out is by being an initiator or a penetrator, an effector to create movement to impact in a meaningful way. There are words that get used to men more, most often in Scripture, and a lot of times what God's call on men is, he calls them to be strong, and he calls them to be courageous. To create opportunity, to make something happen. In, in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, there's this word gets used, and it's uh, Paul's writing to the Corinthians in general. But he uses it, he, here's how it's translated in one, one translation. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong. Four statements there. The third of those statements, be men of courage, is one word in the Greek. One simple word. And that word is andridzomai, or it's from the, the root of andridzomai. From andro. It basically means man it. Man up. The implication of that is you as a man are called to, to be a man who, and that means be strong. And that's why you get translations like be men of courage. Be somebody who, who is willing to go in the face of fear and take responsibility to enact a positive influence on the, on the world around you. 
when, when uh, John writes to, to different followers of Christ, he divides them up into older men and younger and older women and then younger men. And when he writes specifically to, to younger men in 1 John 2, he says this, I write to you young men, and here's what he focuses on, because you have overcome the evil one. He re- later on, he says, I, re- I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. It's somebody who exercises a strength to be somebody who moves forward. It, it, that might include moving against that, which would block your assignment. Sometimes it means fighting. But it always cr- carries an energy with it. it. What it is, is it's an assertiveness, sometimes willing to be aggressive, that stretches and that risks This lodges the norm for the purpose of creating something even better. To create some discomfort so that you plow the soil so that things will grow better. You you change the environment. You act as a catalyst upon it. That's what it is. I I, I thought this was fascinating. I've read um, a a very outspoken um, feminist named Camille Paglia who was interviewed in the Wall Street Journal just recently again. She's been around for years there is a great number of things that I disagree with her about. But she's a teacher at Yale. She's a social critic. And she's a self-acclaimed feminist. She wrote a groundbreaking book called Sexual Persona. And in that interview, she said that there's something happening in our society when it comes to males. This is a feminist speaking. And she's what, what we're seeing is how a civilization commits suicide. She says the primary way in which that happens is, is what she calls, is what we're doing to boys and men in this country. She says the military is out of fashion. Americans undervalue manual labor. Schools neuter male students. Opinion makers deny the bi- biological differences between men and women. Sexiness is dead. She talks about schools that make a toxic environment for boys. Uh, we, we're doing everything in our power to neuter, she says, boys. Everything from eliminating recess and dodgeball and other things that, that we say we can't be too aggressive. We've got to neuter that in our males. She says this, the PC gender politics thing, the way gender is being taught in the universities, it's very anti-male way. It's about neutralizing all of maleness. Masculinity is just becoming something that's imitated from the movies. There's nothing left. There's no room for anything manly right now. I appreciate the honesty of that. Because what, what it is, is an assignment to move powerfully, to be a catalyst, to, to disrupt things, to attack things for a purpose. Now, here's what it's not. Here's, here's what that aspect of being an initiator, penetrator, even leader is not. It is not meeting brute force for its own sake. It's not a matter of just getting stronger to impose your own will or to establish your worth based on your superiority of what you've accomplished. It's not being strong to prove that you're strong. It doesn't mean that, that, that role of man, there are no bullies in God's design. There's no thugs. There's no intimidation. No, it's not just to be a thrill junkie. See, true strength in a man when men, when men are truly strong, they never have to threaten anybody because they don't hold their strength for that purpose. Well, that was interesting. A lot of people in the room are MMA fans, UFC fans. Not here to say yay or nay about that, but there was an, 
there was a, a, a guy who had who in Matt, Matt Hill is his MMA weekly. And he asked people who were in the, that environment, ultimate fighting, why they do it. Why do you fight? I, I, my ears perked up when I, when I heard about that. I want to find out what, what is it? That, because ultimate fighting is considered by many to be the, the ultimate way that a man proves he's a man. The toughest, manliest man is the, is the victor in that. And when they gave their reasons, they didn't enhance the argument very well. Because here's what some of them say. Mike Swick says, I fight because it's the ultimate form of competition between two individuals, and I'm a very competitive person. I fight to, to win, basically. I fight to show that I can, I can compete and, and show my superiority. There's an innate desire to compete. Uh, Frank Trigg, who's a former UFC and Pride star, said, I fight to show that my training works. So I set out to do something, and I'm going to accomplish it. And if I do, then I prove something. Middleweight champion Travis Luder says, I fight because I can. Luke Kumo says, this is my job. The UFC writes my paycheck. So I fight for them. Josh Berkman, a former uh, star team, team punishment players uh, member, says, I love to compete, and it is the ultimate form of competition, not to mention women love it. Not everybody, apparently. Here's the difference. The assignment that God gives to men is to get strong, to be courageous, and to move powerfully and courageously into your world, but not for you. Not for your agenda, not for your ego, not for your will. It is always to advance something outside himself that a man is given this assignment. And to bring glory to God by doing it. And that leads to the second word, which is the word enhancer. A perfecter. Again, the passage in in Genesis 2 talks about to to work the, 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 uh, the garden and to take care of it. The garden was supposed to grow better because Adam was given an assignment to take the, to put his energies into that which is entrusted to him and to bring out its best. Can I read you again from Ephesians 5, the passage that I, I mentioned earlier? Husbands, men are called to do something with their wives. They're called to make her holy, cleansing her, and to present her to himself, this is Christ in the church also, as a radiant one without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. It says in the same way, that's the way husbands are called. The enactment of our purpose, of our power, of our courage, is not to prove anything about who we are. It is to bring the best out of that environment we've been entrusted. That environment can include your workplace. It can include your family. It can include the kingdom of God. The energy goes into into bringing that out. What that means is that there's an intentionality about that. Guys, you're going to hear more about this next week. If you are a man, you are supposed to have a plan. Not for your retirement only. Not for your your physical well-being. You are supposed to have a plan for those 
who have been entrusted to your care. If you've got a woman in your life, you're supposed to have a plan. If you have children in your life, what is your plan for what their experience, what, what systematic experiences are there being lined up? What are you leading them to, to do that they may not do on their own in order to produce an environment where they, the, the best is brought out of them for the glory of their creator? Barring from next week, so I'm going to keep moving. It needs to beautify the world we're in, to optimize it, to purify it, to set it up for its highest success. You know what it's not for? The plan is not to procure stuff for your agenda or for yourself. You, you, don't, you don't enhance your own life, even though this is where we're fighting. Remember the two enemies we got? We, what we're fighting is, is a, a fleshly desire that says that what we really want is we just want to eat and we just want to sleep and we just want to watch sports and we just want to feel good. God says, no, your assignment is to enhance not your state, but the state of those entrusted to you. It is not to prove something. It's not to prove your, your way is right. It's not to impose your will so you can be a tyrant on your world. You, you hear about the, um, the freighter that got caught in the ice, right? the Russian freighter, and, um, and it's in the Antarctic, and it got icebound, and so they called the Chinese, and the Chinese sent their ice-breaking vessel to, to free it. And the Chinese had trouble, so then they called the Australians. And yesterday, the Australians called the U.S. Coast Guard. The U.S. Coast Guard is now deploying its one ice-breaking vessel to the same region to rescue everybody else. That's all gotten... I, th- I think, does the rest of the world not see Titanic? Did they not notice what the, but I'm going to tell you, when I read that and I heard that, something went through my mind. What went through my mind was, boy, I sure hope that they can get those people taken care of. I, my mind was not, oh, I sure hope they can, they can stop damage from happening. You know what went through my mind? Yeah, let's see the Americans pull this off, baby. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what went through my mind. Because I want to feel good about who I am and who we are. I want to show that we know what we're doing like the rest of the world doesn't. That's what goes through my head. And God says, guys, your assignment is to move into your world with power and with courage, but not to prove something about yourself, not to get your way or to line up your life. It is to enhance those entrusted to you. What brings out their best holiness? If you're part of this, I'm going to get, see, I can't help myself. Next week, we're going to talk about a whole lot of how this works. But guys, if you're a part of a church, you are not doing your job. If you just show up here and say, I go to church, you are called to be a shepherd. For the people around you, in your family, in your cell group, you are called to be somebody who enhances their experience, their holiness, their blamelessness. We are are called to do that. And if we don't, we're missing the best part of what God wired us up to be. You're not just supposed to be a provider. You're not just supposed to be a protector. You are to be an architect, an orchestrator. It means to produce a path to catalyze optimal conditions. And here's the third word. To live that out, this component is there. To be a responsibility taker. An absorber of a cost. A willingness to take the consequences. 
to accept the blame. To understand that God said something to Adam. There's, I don't think it's a mistake. I don't think it's just nuance. That when we get to Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve sin, Eve is the one who makes the first choice. And when God shows up, he does not pull Eve aside first. He pulls Adam aside first. I think there's a reason for that. He was given the responsibility. Before even Eve was even created, he was told, you make sure that you stay away from the one tree. And so he says, you answer for that to me, Adam. The assignment of man is to say, I am accountable for that which is entrusted to me. I am willing to answer for even what other people do. I am willing to step into the path and say, you can blame me for that. In 1 1 Timothy chapter 3, there's um, some statements made to uh, those who are aspiring to be elders, who in that era were men. Here they are too. And, And also to deacons. And it talks about male deacons and female deacons. But specifically when it's talking about male deacons, it says something about them. The same thing it says to the males who are, at, who are asked to be elders of the church. This is what it says. An overseer, elder, he must manage his own family well. See that his children obey him with proper respect. The deacon, then it goes on to say, must be the husband of one wife and must manage his children and his household well. We'll talk more about how a man will empower that to happen, how he doesn't dictate that to happen. But when it comes down to what does my household stand for? What is, what is, the, what is the name we, we carry represent? I am on point. I am given that responsibility. God asks me to accept that. In order to do that, I need to learn what is best for them. I need to empower them. I need to play to their strengths. Not just dictate the terms. But it also means that I have to be willing to sacrifice. And that's an important word in that, in that phrase, phrase to the right. Sacrificing to bring out what's best. I, at the holidays, we saw It's a Wonderful Life again. Some of you have seen that too many times. Some of you have never seen it at all. But there's a scene in there that always, I felt something, and I felt it again when I heard the phrase. And evil Mr. Potter is standing there when George is trying to ask him to help him uh, replace $8,000 that his wacky uncle had misplaced. Mr. Potter knew it had happened. He He was complicit in it happening. He helped steal that money. But when George shows up and, and goes to, to the, Mr. Potter and says, he, he, says what, he says, what's the matter? He goes, I've, lo- I've misplaced $8,000. Mr. Potter says, you've misplaced $8,000? Yes, he says, I misplaced $8,000. Something in my soul went, ooh, what, what was that? I felt something. Because there was something very, very noble that came out of that character right at that moment. It would have been absolutely accurate and acceptable and understandable to say, you know my crazy uncle. But he was the head of the organization. And when he stood up to absorb the cost, he said, I misplaced $8,000. We as men are called to absorb the pain. We are called to sacrifice ourselves, even when we may not be to blame for the advance and the good of those in our world to whom we've been entrusted our charges so it is not 
this aspect does not mean I do it to preserve myself or to serve myself. What it is, is to volunteer to take on the cost. Now I want you to know something about those aspects and that phrase. Jesus Christ came to earth. We just celebrated his coming. And he came as a male. Lots of people argue theologically about what that means, what it doesn't mean. I'm not here to diminish females. I believe he is the savior of men and women. I, I got all... I, want to say all the disclaimers but when he came as a male he lived as a male and when i look at jesus i see the prototypical male living out those aspects of that assignment i need i see somebody who took who who decided to move purposefully and powerfully into his world the whole incarnation is him doing that to go and to have an effect on something. I see him some, being somebody who is, who's his purpose. He came, he said, I, the, the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to be a servant. He came to sacrifice his life. He came give, to give up himself. In fact, Hebrews 9 put, puts it this way. Now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy he is living out the the presenting of holiness of people who trust him to their creator and i see him taking responsibility absorbing the penalty of sin from that same passage man there's a reason there's a reason you have impulses there's a reason guys like to hunt things there's a reason guys like to make create things. There's a reason, and I, yes, I know it's a broad brush, but there's a reason why we like so, a whole lot of us like to compete, or we wanna we wanna make we, we wanna move forward. There's a reason because the God who made you included that in the DNA of your spirit. Selfishness and fear, we're gonna see next time, have corrupted it. And block it. Disrupt it. But I believe with everything in me that God has given us a call as men to take it back. To take back the role God made for us that we have messed up. To show a world that may have never seen it before and a family that may have never seen it before what it means to be a man who will move powerfully into his world but will do it entirely to enhance the lives the holiness of the ones around him and will sacrifice himself and take responsibility to do it. Next week, we'll talk about specific ways that the men in your world could do that, including the men who are here. Pray with me.